Hi, I'm Mike Marino, and this is a brand new episode of Live from My Mother's Basement. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Live from My Mother's Basement. You can hear in my voice how happy I am because obviously we're not in my mother's basement. No, we're in some disclosed neighborhood in Florida somewhere. I can't give you the address. All I can tell you is I am so happy and honored to be invited to my guest's home. This is Ciro DiPaggio, who we're having back on the show because when we taped this once before, it just wasn't happening, different time in life. But now things are bigger, better, and I'm here in Florida. Like I said, I can't tell you where we are, but this house is absolutely stunning, gorgeous. We're out by the pool. I'm having a cappuccino. He's having his delicious My monster. sponsor, Monster Rehab. You need rehab? Monster. I cut that check. <laughs> Please cut the check. Ladies and gentlemen, Ciro DiPaggio. Thank you, brother. Hello. Thank you so much for letting me come back and hang out with you and bullshit and catch up. Um, crazy life story, uh, you know, from my point of view, crazy life from where we're going to catch where he was born, raised, where did he go? Uh, how much time did he spend where he went? And now one of the biggest names in the movie business, uh, in, in the country. So, um, I don't know much about Florida. Yeah. I mean, I really don't even know where we are. I could just tell you that it is absolutely gorgeous. It's the month of October. I don't know when this one's going to air, but it feels like it's summer. And uh, so where were you actually born and raised? Because, you know, a lot of people, when we look at your work, what's the first thing we think? He's like yeah. a New Yorker, you know. And yeah. um, I, I'm not really sure where I was born. You know, I have a, a birth certificate that was filed two years later, which is normally an indication of adoption. Uh, I know that my my parents were adopted parents, you know. Um, I, I don't really want to get into the whole, you know, everybody always claiming to be something and all that. It just was what it was. And, uh, you know, I got a good idea where I came from or whatever. But uh, the moral to the story is, is, yeah, I lived in New York and, yeah, I lived in Miami. And uh, <laughs> I can I consider myself a Miamian, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's Floridians and then there's a Miamian. Is it so, that different? It is that different. You know, it's a mentality. It's a personality. You know, I, I'm just, uh, I take the sun and the beach and the pool and the water and the laid back atmosphere, the cultures, any day over trying to find parking just to go get a freaking submarine sandwich. You know? Oh, yes, absolutely. So. Are you kidding me? It's funny that you say the way there's a difference between Floridians and Miamians yeah. because I live in Los Angeles. And I say the same thing. There's a big difference between Californians and Los Angelinos. It's yeah. almost like a different country. Yeah. Because living in, in L.A. is rough. But there are areas of California like Florida. You go to the beach, you go surfing, life is laid back. Yeah. Los Angeles, oh, it's like you just said. You're waiting in line in traffic to get a sub sandwich. Right. Yeah, I don't like it. You know, it's gloomy. It's dirty. It's not like it was in the 80s. You know, I was there in the 80s. It was a great time, you know. Now, I live I lived there again, you know, um, for a year, and I couldn't wait to get out. Was that right? Yeah, it was just horrible. Trash on the streets, potholes. You know, you're driving down just 
you know, the beltway and you're like, it's just morbidly ugly. You know what I mean? And you drive down the highways here in, in Florida and it's like behind us here, picturesque. You know, so. And, it, and it's funny sometimes too, so many people that say, you know, New York is the greatest city, this is the greatest place to be. And you feel like, oh no, no, it's, it's really not. And then after the pandemic, it got really, really bad. There's a reason why everybody transplants down here, you know? It's beautiful so, down here. I'm not I knocking got... it, you know, it's more priority. It's got its own vibe, you know, if I had to live there, I would live in the city, obviously, you know, but in order to do that and live there right, you gotta have millions of dollars. So, you know, that's just what it is. If you're not a millionaire, living in the city is really gonna suck. I think yeah. you gotta be like somewhere halfway to being a millionaire just to live <laughs> decently. Yeah, I agree. So, you know. But Florida is the place to be now. Miami is the place to be, <clears throat> not Florida. Florida, <laughs> Miami. South Florida, Miami. let's put it that way, but yeah, Miami. Uh, I don't know Miami extremely well. A lot of the reasons why I get to come to Miami is because I get to do some performances and then that's how I met you and I got to spend some time in Miami working on your project, Silent Partners, which we're gonna talk about. But uh, let's suppose we're at uh, the high school level. You're getting out of high school, you're getting ready to attack the world. Where did you go and what did you do and what are we allowed to elaborate well, while we're I mean, listening? I was really good at sports, so you know, I had scholarship offers and stuff like that and um, you know, I was scheduled to uh, attend the U you know, as a baseball player. And uh, somehow or another, the lure of the, you know, uh, easy money, <laughs> you know, became uh, more pulling towards, for me, towards that life, you know. So I ended up just, uh, it's one of my greatest regrets, you know. I would have loved to have seen how I would have fared, you know, at the time, the UM was the, top baseball school you know they had just won the college well they won the college world series a year after i would have been going there but ron frazier was the baseball coach at that time he followed my career all the way through little league and into the high schools and stuff like that and uh you know one thing led to another because <clears throat> of um you know different types of things in my life and um you know it was a good you know eight year run and then it was a bad run <laughs> you look like you would be like on the cover of Wheaties. Now that I think about it, yeah, it would. You know, you know, I played. He's football, the all-American uh, star, baseball player. I yeah. could, you know, what position did you actually play? I was a pitcher. Yeah, which was, which was one of the problems because I didn't want to pitch. I wanted to play shortstop because when you get into, you know, um, when you get into the college levels and stuff, they you're either a pitcher or an infielder. You're usually not both. You know what I mean? So, and I was a really good hitter, and they didn't let pitchers hit so at that point my scholarship was you're going to be a pitcher so I was like ah, no thanks really yeah <laughs> you don't want to be the star of the team wants to be the guy to the right I wanted to be able to hit yeah yeah so I guess my shortstop skills weren't better than whoever else they were having at the time you know so but whatever you know it's always a competition somewhere somehow or even politics I guess yeah I can tell you something even more silly right so my group of friends you know, the other thing I wanted to do was fly fighter jets, right? So, <clears throat> my group of friends, we were all going to join the Navy. I was going to join to be a fire pilot. And, like, we all go, we go, we enlist, we do all, you know, we sign up, we're going to do this. So, we're going down to uh, meet the recruiter and stuff like that. 
and uh, get it all done. And I basically show up back home, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, hey, I'm not going to go. <laughs> you know, and they're like, why? I'm like, I'm not shaving my head and going through all that shit. I just want to fly jets. <laughs> you know, because you're young and you don't realize yeah. you, there's a whole process involved, you know? You got to go to school and learn aviation. Yeah, I've always <laughs> been a person who wants to skip the process, you know what I mean? So it's like, fuck it. And then, um, you know, and the rest is kind of like, you know, history. All right, so I could see the uh, the want to be a fighter pilot and I could see, of course, the, the want to be a star athlete. I mean, you're a really tall, strapping, good-looking guy in great shape. We're going to talk about also how he had some medical issues because I got to say, you look a hundred percent better than the last time I was down here and I saw you. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear all of that success. But how could you and would you elaborate on what happened that you didn't do the baseball thing, but you? Yeah. Um, again, you know, I don't. I don't really care to be one of those people that glorify any of that type of life. So let's just say that, you know, I was involved with, with things that, you know, caused me to have an issue and I spent quite a bit of time away and uh, came out. Didn't want to spend a, quite a bit of time away again. So I said, well, let me try making movies about what I know. And uh, it's been pretty successful. Well, see, that's the thing. Uh, comedy is the truth. That's what makes people laugh. Writing, creating the truth becomes more endearing for people to want to watch and more believable because it's actually what really happened. So I've had a lot of different people on my podcast, some people who actually will glorify where they went and why they had to go, if you guys understand what I'm talking about, because what, that's what they have and that's what they want to take forward. Maybe they'll write a book or they'll They'll say, here's how you shouldn't do what I did, that type of a thing. Then they become influencers. Ciro here is actually just letting you know, I don't really need to talk about what went wrong, but now it's right, and I'm going to take that ball and go forward with it. Yeah. Am I correct saying it that way? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the influencer term. You know, I have a lot of followers, yeah. a, lot, a lot of genuine people, you know, um, on like Facebook, for example, is a couple million, you know, of course, Facebook doesn't let you have exposure to everybody. But I still if you look at the engagement, which is how you can always root out what's real and what's not. If someone has a million followers and they get two comments and 12 likes, you know what time it is, you know what I mean? <laughs> or even if they get a thousand likes and only two comments, you know what time it is. The engagement is what's what's key. And that's why people come to me for, you know, endorsements and products and stuff like that. You know, I have a whole range of stuff that I have my name on and stuff like that. So, you know, it's based on the fact that when I put something out there, people buy it and people go for it. You know what I mean? So um, in that sense, for whatever reason, you know, a lot of people talk about how I inspire them or whatever the case may be. So I want the inspiration to be about what you can do on the good side of the fence, not what, you know, you, you do on the bad side of the fence. You know what I mean? Yes. Maybe that was cool. You know, I thought it was cool in the 70s and 80s growing up and stuff, but the reality of it is it's not. And none of it is like what people think it is. You know, it's a dirty world, and, uh, you know, I just soon forget that it ever existed because it ruined my life. You know, I spent a long time away. It ruined my kids' lives. Fortunately, God has seen it in his, you know, goodwill, universe, whatever you want to call it, to give me another chance at a family, to give me a chance to experience raising the kids all the way through instead of just partially here or there and uh i'm gonna capitalize on it you know so <clears throat> and it's great what you do too because i see your posts with your kids 
That's all that matters. Like a little, little boy. Yeah. And my older kids and my grandkids. I got 13 grandkids. You know, I got a big family. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> 13 grandkids. Yeah. You know, I got six kids. I got, you know, grandkids, all nine yards. Well, there's one thing I definitely want to talk about, and I hope you'll uh, expand on this because sure. this is inspirational for people who are watching because there's a lot of people who go through this particular problem. I did, you did, and not a lot, a lot of people want to talk about it, but it's when you get sick and you have to make some decisions about your life, your body, <clears throat> will you fight? You know, there's a lot of people out there who unfortunately get cancer, Will they fight? Will they get through it or just succumb to it and say whatever? But there's some people out there like yourself that can actually help those people get through it yeah. by saying, holy shit, I'm not alone. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. Can you tell me how you did what you did? Sure. Well, you know, people who do follow me know that three years ago, well now, it'll be three and a half years ago, I was in Spain. You know, I was going to do a TV show for the Mob King and uh, everything was looking good. And then, of course... COVID hit, and uh, and then I got diviculitis, perforated diviculitis, with septic shock, almost died. It was like a 12% survival rate. I was in ICU for five weeks. I lost 70 pounds. You know, the doctor said the only reason why I survived was because of my muscle mass. You know, so because it would have been eating my organs and stuff. So, the miraculous thing about Mob King the movie is that I had filmed the first 20 minutes of that movie before I went to Spain in uh, December of 2019, and. Um, just to reset the deck, me and Jokes wanted to, you know, make it new because uh, the uh, web series was widely popular. Everybody loved it, but we were like, let's let's do something different. Let's do something new because we were waiting for it to come out. So long story short, you know, I'm pretty jacked up in, in that movie because, you know, I, I work out every day and, and that's how I'm able to put back my size now, even though I don't have testosterone because of the prostate cancer, but I'll get to that in a minute. But um, so... I lose all that weight, I come back, I have a bag, you know, they gave me a bag, so I had a bag for six months, and I'm like, I gotta get to America, I gotta get my health right, you know, so I walk away from that deal out there, I come back here, I get the surgery, get that off of me, and put my weight back, and the miraculous nature of the film is that there was a small window, and it just so happened that everybody was available, and my physique was exactly like it was prior three years ago, you know, right, three right. years earlier, two and a half years earlier. So, and the daughter, like now we wouldn't have been able to do it because now she's 22 she and she older. looks, you know, <laughs> way different. But when we did this two years ago, she was right at that point where you didn't really see much of a difference. You know what I mean? And, um, and then everybody being available and, but most importantly was, you know, nobody had face tattoos that were new. Nobody had, no, and, the, and the main character, my character, looked exactly the same. Because if you've watched the movie, the majority of the movie, I'm either shirtless or in a tank top with blood covered over me. Yeah, yeah. Fighting, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was imperative that that look match or we wouldn't have been able to do it. So that was a miraculous thing there. So then, almost towards the end of filming, you know, I get, uh, I have a problem going to the restroom or whatever, and it had nothing to do with the cancer, but it was just like some fluke that I just couldn't pee something, and okay, I got some type of infection or whatever, and I go there, they put a catheter in, and I wait three days, I go back, still can't pee, I go over, they do, you know, their, all their little things, and you know, long story short, you got prostate cancer, metastatic stage four, it's 
all over you, you know, in your ribs, your lymph nodes or whatever. If I had gotten that diagnosis, even when I got that diagnosis, they were like, you got 18 months. You know, if you wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have had trouble urinating, this is what the urologist told me, if you wouldn't have had trouble urinating, he's like, you believe in God? I'm like, I don't know, you know, I guess, right? And uh, I tell him I believe something's out there, you know, how could it not be? And he's like, well, you need to thank whoever it was because had you not had that problem, prostate cancer, you can live all the way up until like the last month. And sometimes if it's in your backbone, then you get, um, you get, uh, where you paraplegic or whatever, right? So that's how people find out about it or their bones are hurting and they don't really know, you know what I mean? Like your ribs will hurt, but you'll think it's gas or whatever. Right, right. So um, the reason why now I'm a firm believer in God, <laughs> okay, is because of that reason there, number one. But then, you know, they're like, okay, so we're gonna try, when you have prostate cancer, the fuel for the fire is testosterone. So you guys out there that are doing testosterone at 40, 45, who they're telling you, yeah, it makes you feel better and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm not talking about bodybuilding testosterone. Like, you know, that's not, that's not, that's a whole different ballgame. If I had been doing testosterone like that for a bodybuilder, I would have been dead already because it's fuel to the fire. Oh. You know what I'm saying? So the only thing that prostate cancer eats is testosterone. So when you get it, if you can't have radiation to get it out of your prostate or have your prostate removed or whatever, then you have to do these hormone treatments. And the hormone treatments basically try to turn you into Caitlyn Jenner. All right? Wow. Because they take away all the testosterone in your body. Like, the, you know, your testes produce it, but then I guess I think it's the thalamus or the pituitary gland. I'm not really a doctor, so I don't know, but there's a gland that gives like 10% of it. These pills and treatments, um, they, there's a shot called Lupron you take every three months. It's very powerful. It makes your bones hurt and all this, but it drains that testosterone and kills, in theory, not kills, but shrinks the tumors and makes them lie dormant. So usually when you have metastatic stage four prostate cancer or breast cancer, they're basically the same for women, then you do these hormone treatments and you have to usually go three years and then you get what's called a holiday and eventually it comes back because um, it gets resistant then there's another set of treatments to deal with the resistance but basically it's like a disease now where five years ago the lifespan of you when you got metastatic stage 4 prostate cancer was about less than two years because they had no way of controlling it so now that's the good side of things right so because of my age they thought maybe you have the gene maybe it's you know genetic or whatever clearly it was genetic but you know, my adopted parents never had it, but I had no way of finding out who, what, when, oh, or where. Wow. So I didn't know. And um, so, you know, fortunately, I got it caught. Now, where the God transformation comes in is like, okay, so they're telling me, we want you to do this drug called Erlita. We want you to do chemotherapy, and we want you to do the, the shot, right? I'm like, I'm not doing chemotherapy, you know. Um, we'll just see how the other two work. And I don't know why I did that, because it could have been a life <laughs> changing decision. Yeah, what made you say I no? I could have died. I don't know. I, I, similar to like the, uh, I guess the air, the uh, Navy story. I was like, I don't, I can't lose my hair. I'm in the middle of work. I right, got things right. I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I have a career. If I'm only gonna live three years, I still want to create the legacies that I need to get my family straight. You know what I mean? So for some reason, I just didn't do it. And uh, my PSA for those of you out there that know was 68.0. Okay, which is outrageously high. 
So my urologist says that out of 30 years of being a urologist, he's only seen a score that high seven times. So my Gleason was an eight, if you know these terms. The Gleason was an eight and uh, it was metastatic stage four. So I take just the two treatments. Right away after the first month, it goes from 68 to 13, which is still extremely high. If you had a 13 right now on your PSA, you would have cancer 100%, right? And then it dropped down to four. So clearly the medicines, I, you know, people have a good reaction, people don't have no reaction, people have bad reactions, right? Clearly I was having a good reaction. After three months, it went all the way down to the undetectable. It went to 0, 0.9, which is undetectable. So the most important thing was when I did the PSMA2 scan, that's the other thing that they got now, before their treatments, once you had metastatic, they didn't allow you to have any curative care because they figured it was already in your bones. There's no way to tell because a bone scan only picks it up when it's already tumors. But now they have a PSA2 scan. It's called a PSMA2. They shoot some stuff into you and it lights up exactly where the prostate cancer is in your body. Exactly. Oh, right? shit. So now they know. So the Erlita, when I did the PSMA2 uh, scan three months later, the alert Lita had actually killed three spots. I had eight spots. In order to get uh, proof for insurance, you have to have three to five spots in your body max, right? To be able to do the radiation. Because it's a lot of radiation when you go outside that part as well. And plus the insurance costs a million dollars. Who's got a million dollars to do insurance, uh, to do radiation for a month, you know what I mean? Right, holy shit. So the miraculous thing was, he's like, I don't, you know, th these results are, you know, really confounding to me, he says, because we have three spots that were actually killed by the Erlita. That usually doesn't happen. So again, you got somebody on your side. So now you qualify for the radiation. So I went through the whole radiation. I did the ribs on radiation. Uh, I came off the medication after one year. I've been off of it for five months. So it takes a while for your body to get back because these are powerful medications, you know, so my legs are still sore, you know, but my energy levels are back. I'm in the gym, you know, and the beautiful thing about this, that maybe a lot of you don't know, you guys out there, testosterone doesn't, you don't actually need testosterone to build muscle. It just inflates your building process. The same way it inflates the cancer, it inflates the muscle process, it's basically fake muscles, you know what I mean? But you can't get that enormously, you know, bodybuilder look without all of that stuff. And that's why when you see them after the fact of doing it, they don't look themselves, you know what I mean? They, they shrivel up like a prune. So, you know, that's where I'm at now, you know, uh, I am coming back, you know, and, and uh, you know, and if I stay, my PSA levels are in remission. So if I stay that way for five years, then I'm considered cured. But, you know, in the end, when you have cancer, is it really ever cured? You know, I'm young, so the chance that it comes back later, but they have this term that they use called whack-a-mole. So if the PSA starts to rise, then we go in, we do a PSMA scan, we see where it's at, and they whack it with radiation. Whack-a-mole. So it's basically a managed disease now. Yeah. You know, it's not like uh, pancreatic or brain or something like that that are just devastating diagnoses. You know, that's when you know there's nothing you can do. That shit's heavy. I got to tell you, man, you do look phenomenal. Thank you. I mean, you. Uh, I don't remember when I was down here last and I was doing the show and you and your friends came to the ago. show and I'm like, wow, you know, you look a little uh, yeah. skinny. It was over a year ago. Yeah, I yeah. was definitely skinny. I lost a bunch of weight again, you know, my it's it's uh, interesting that uh, you went through diverticulitis. I don't know how you said it. I had diverticulitis too. Diverticulosis you live with. It's the the the, the seed bullshit that's in your colon that that eats away at you. 
but if it inflames, then you got to go into the hospital and have a piece of your colon cut out. Yeah. I had that done. I didn't have cancer. I had resection. They I took had that too. 12 inches of the colon out. Yeah. I lost so much weight. I looked like a skeleton yeah. just laying in that bed. Okay, so but they saved my life because yeah. Yeah. I couldn't go to the bathroom. Yeah, so exactly what you had, there's another thing on top of it called perforated. It's where it, it, it come, forms a pouch. Right. And then when it ruptures, it's called diviculitis, perforated diviculitis with complications. So now I'm in Spain. They don't know how to diagnose this crap. So for three weeks, I'm going in with all this pain. They're telling me I just got back pain. They're giving me pain meds. Nobody oh, even ran no blood. Man. But at the same time, what's happening is poison's going into my bloodstream. So by the time I go in in three weeks, I basically fall out, you know? So um, I went into shock and all that kind of stuff. And it was just a miserable time for me. It was just, uh, I don't know, you know, that's even worse than cancer, what happened to me there. I think so too, because <laughs> you know, when I eventually had that surgery, the pain, that, the, that's a horrible the, pain. the pain that's in your stomach. That's man. a terrible pain. In fact, the day that I finally went and they admitted me and they knew something was going on, um, I told my wife, I go, I gotta have stomach cancer or something. This is just too painful. You know, couldn't walk, couldn't move, was shaking. It was just terrible, man. But, I've been uh, saying for a long time, too, now, in, especially even in my act, that people need to get checked all the time when you feel like there's a little bit of a problem because as you get older, the problems might not be yep. prominent. you got to go figure it out. Yep. Recently, I had a problem where I was, uh, I had to pee, like, right away. Mm -hmm. I didn't even drink a lot of water, nothing. I'm like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? I had to pee so badly yep. that I pulled over. And a little blood came out. Uh, and then I called a few of my doctor friends, and they said, I, it's, you passed the stone. Mm -hmm. I go, while I was driving? He yeah. goes, yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah, it is. I thought, I'm like, I'm dying, that's it, it's over. He goes, Have you no, ever seen I, one? No. They're really I sharp. I didn't see it. They're really sharp and really hard. Is that right? Yeah, that's why they're so painful. Oh, my God, I thought I cut myself. Uh -huh. But I guess I didn't. That's and a friend of mine was like, dude, you know how lucky you are? You, you pissed it out. I'm like... How do you even know that? Yeah. So what I would say to people watching this is that uh, whether your husbands, boyfriends, or your men, you can't take the prostate as a joke, man. A lot of people, you know, they'll think, okay, I'm over 40, I pee three times a night. If you're peeing three times a night, you know, you need to go get your PSA checked. You know, it could just be, you know, your prostate swells, you know, as you age, and uh, it could just be that. But if you catch prostate cancer before it leaves, the prostate you got a 100% chance you don't have to do the hormone treatments you don't have to do nothing they just they'll either monitor it or go in and zap it and that's it and the check for prostate is a PSA it's just test a PSA test man you do a PSA blood test you can go to quest you can go any hospital anything like that and you check it and if it's anything above a 4.0 then you need to do some more checks that where it good to be, know where it should be is a, a 1.0 2.0 max you know I'm actually going to look into that because I thought, oh, God, what's wrong with me? Yeah. If you're getting up three times a night to pee, then you're getting up too many times. And if you're peeing four or five times a day, then you either got, you know, there's a lot of different things it can be that's not cancer. But if you're over 40, over 45, and you're peeing a lot at night, go check your PSA. This is fantastic. I'm so glad we got this down because... I know a lot of people going, I'm glad these guys told us this shit. You're going to write it down, research it, Google. Now well, we're going to talk about show business. You want to stay off of Google because Google will tell you if you have a pimple that you have cancer. So, you know, like I said, the, the main thing you want to do about checking your prostate health is just check your PSA. That's it. Is that right? You really believe Google give you a little too oh, much yeah. information, yeah, wrong information? Yeah, yeah. like 
When I first got diagnosed with that, and I Googled, it said I had less than three years to live. Right. And I was just panicking, you know? I'm like, what the fuck is this? There's gotta be some way to fix that, and, you know? And then the doctors are like, yeah, that's how it was five years ago, you know? It's not like that now. If you respond, and this was before I responded, they're like, if you respond to treatment, you're gonna be okay. And I did, thankfully, you know? Thank whoever up there. <laughs> So now he's looking good, he's sharp. I always call him the new 007. Yeah. <laughs> this is James Bond. I'm letting the hair grow out. <laughs> yeah, I noticed let your hair grow. That's for the ministry that we're gonna be doing over there in February. So, you know, I play a, a ministry agent. The, the agents masquerade as a biker gang, it's pretty cool. How did you get involved with, let's say, Mob King and Jokes and, and your team of people who put that together? And then you went on to do a few other projects, like of course, Silent Partners, Cherry Pickers, um, Suitcasing, mm -hmm. and like, how does this come to you, or who did you go to to actually start? Well, I, I basically just got out and just started filming stuff, you know, on my iPhone. <laughs> right. You know, I just I was like, you know, I was very naive about how it goes because everybody thinks you just film it and they'll come, but that's not yeah. how it works. You know? <laughs> no, it's not. So, um, but fortunately, Anthony Carone, you know, had heard about it, contacted me, and then, you know, introduced me to jokes, and fast forward through that, I meet Barry, Barry puts a web series together for us, and I guess my character and my ability on screen just took it from there, and people just gravitated towards it, and, you know, I come up with things, you know, for ideas for shows and stuff like that, you know, the, the prison comedy was based on actual true events all the way down to the names of all the actors and everybody in it and the, and the, the lieutenant that I hated in, in there I used him you know and the whole nine yards you know so that's in there and then Silent Partners of course is me and my brother Dave Icavetti you know we uh, we decided to let the cat out of the bag on that one you know because my whole time I like you know I'm not a clout chaser so I was never like oh I used to work for this person that person this person you know I think that's all ridiculous so you know, we, we come out with uh, Silent Partners and an insurance scan that was going on in the 80s. And then COVID hit, you know, and uh, I'm kind of one of those guys that sticks to, I want to do this my way or I'm not going to do it type of thing, you know. So I wasn't going to cut out all the guys like you who were in it who were counting on me to make something happen with it. And now here we are. And uh, we're going to turn it into a movie because it already has distribution and already has a powerful company behind it called Buffalo 8. And uh, so now we're gonna film in February, late January, uh, 40, 30 to 45 more minutes. So we're gonna put it all together as a film and release it. And uh, it's gonna do really so good. So you're actually gonna take original footage from Silent Partners and add to it? Yeah, yeah. After, well, I'm not gonna tell what goes on in the movie, but you know, after that part where, you know, you have a headache. <laughs> You know, uh, we go into a whole nother segment. It's in the 80s, you know, and uh, my character basically, you know, is just going to rob everybody and anybody that was a gangster back then. You know, the Gambinos, the Chicago outfit, at Pablo Escobar, which is the next step. You know, we're going to go into that. Uh, we're adding new cast members to it for that last 30, 45 minute segment. You know, Tony Darrow is going to be in, Paul Bergese, uh, Oksana Lada, who is the uh, mistress of you know, uh, Tony Soprano for the first three seasons. She's a dear friend of mine, great actress, so she'll be in it. Uh, we're talking with Stephen Bauer to play the drug kingpin. He was Manolo and Scarface and Ray Donovan and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, he wasn't Ray Donovan, but he was in Ray Donovan. And, um, you know, and uh, 
we're also going to try to get John Voight for Cameo. You know? These are great names, great ideas, it's going to be a great, great project. Um, when I was telling you about my relationship with John Voight, it happened because I was hosting the Beverly Hills Film Awards. Yeah. Yeah. And I would do it every year. And they would have a lot of celebrities there and maybe three, four hundred people. It was like the mini Oscars. Yeah. I would come out with a tuxedo and read the teleprompter and the whole nine yards. It was just like the greatest time of my life doing it. And in these film festivals, you know all the heads of the film festival because they're the ones who hire me to come out and do what you do. Yeah, of course. So I remember uh, John Voigt came walking into the room late mm -hmm. and he was going to be getting the Lifetime Achievement Award. So as a host who can't go to a commercial break and the band's not playing, I just started saying things like, who are you to come in here late like this? <laughs> and everybody started cheering. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, yeah. he's going to break John Boyd's walls, right? Yeah. But he has such a great demeanor that he was going with it. So we started roasting each other for the whole night. Yeah. So when he came up on stage and I said, ladies and gentlemen, Lifetime Achievement Award, Mr. John Voigt, he grabbed the microphone and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to tell you, this young man should be hosting the Oscars. This is hilarious. That's a personality. I love you. And I don't even know who you are. Yeah. And we became friends. Yeah. So the reason why we're looking at picking him is like people like Anthony Caron and Jokes and all them, they always, they always have this thing, you know, when I was learning the craft of acting and everything, they would always say, you remind me of John Voight. You remind me of John Voight. So we're like... How cool would it be to have him play me, you know, 30 years later? Yup. In Silent Partners. So, yep. you know, um, so that's where we're headed with that. And we got to make that happen. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. We'll reach happen. out to some of our friends and we'll ask to see if we can't yeah. get some uh, favors or, or yeah. whatever like this. But um, these are going to be really, really great projects. Can you tell anybody about uh, Cherry Pickers? Yeah, Cherry Pickers is. Um, it's basically a comedy that we shot, a proof of concept. You're in that as well. And uh, it's, it's, in Hollywood, there's this thing, you know, where people feel like, you know, these big time guys cherry pick ideas from other guys. Like they'll go on IMDb and they'll find an idea. Steel. Yeah, steal. <laughs> and they change the name of the concept, i.e. Tulsa King, Mob King. Guy gets out after 20 years, goes to the Midwest on the run because the family's trying to kill him. Yet Mob King had that exact same scenario five years prior on IMDb. Right. So instead of filing against Tulsa King, which is what our lawyer wanted us to do, they're like, yo, you can stop this whole thing with an injunction because how are they going to respond to that? I mean, there's even some dialogue that's exactly like the webisode episode two of Mob King, you know, five years ago, um, where he says, I don't care if you're Italian or Puerto Rican or whatever, if you're good, you're in with me. I'm starting my own crew. That, that's word for word what we said in episode two of Mob King, you know? So, I mean, uh, episode three of Mob King, right? So, aside from doing that, I didn't want to be alienated, you know? I love Sly Stallone and stuff like that. And, you know, Tyler Sheridan had just gotten a big deal, 200-something million dollars to make all these different shows. So here he's got to kick out all these different shows. So whatever. They have the money, the power to do it. And then you got the little guys that are just there you know I guess Seth Rogen has a, a reputation for doing some of that too where right. he's cherry picked people's ideas so I don't know if that's true Seth but um, that's just what people <laughs> say about you so um, you know we decided to play off of that so that's where the characters come in now um, you know 
you probably know this, a lot of people know this, I, I don't really have an acting bug like these guys do. I have more of a creating bug. So I was gonna play the lead in Cherry Picker, but I had the opportunity to have Rafael Castillo, who's, you know, our friend there that plays the detective in Silent Partners, you know, and he covers a lot of the dynamic to help it get sold in Hollywood, you know. Um, he's a, a black Latino, heavy set, comedic, you know, so I'm like, this is a great opportunity if we can get him. So we offered him my role, he accepted. So then I just play that little studio head. But the reality of it is if you're in this business to be successful, you're gonna do whatever you need to do for the project. Yes. You know, cause too many people- Like a baseball team. Yeah, too many people make vanity projects and that's why it doesn't really go anywhere. They wanna do this and that and the other thing. Um, I tell people all the time, the majority of reasons why I'm the lead in my stuff is so I don't have to pay a lead actor. You know, <laughs> so I save money at it. You know what I mean? And it just so happens that I was pretty good at it, you know? So, um, but ideally, I don't like acting. I think it's boring. I hate standing around. I hate all the whole process. You know, I'm more of a guy who likes to take this seed and make it blossom into an awesome plant and say, all right, this looks great and move on to the next one. Yeah. So that's where I'm headed in that, you know? Um, I did sign with a big agency out in uh, California and, uh, because they seem to think I could be a leading man, so if somebody wants to write me checks for four or five million dollars per episode or whatever, I'll do it. But Take other it. than that, I'm not gonna do stuff for a thousand dollars a day, you know, and go crazy. But I have been saying since the day I met you, I'm like, this guy is, a, he's the new 007. This is James <laughs> Bond, man. He's yeah, got the look, man. When I was watching Mob King and you're standing there and there's that one scene on the boat and the guy's full of blood and a knife and just you being calm and cool, having dinner at the dinner table. I'm like, I don't even know what the word is. You're just so engaging. Thank you. You're not over the top at all. Thank I you. think one of the greatest actors of all time is Denzel Washington. Oh, yeah. Man, you can't stop staring at this guy. And sometimes he's not even saying anything. You're like, wow, you're blowing me away. <laughs> so when I was looking at you in the dailies, I'm like, man, this guy is gonna knock it out of the ballpark. Now, I know my place in the food chain. I want to be the other guy. I want to be the guy that says, "Oh, here's the way you make this gun, and it's going to shoot, and and don't and don't and uh, the gas is going to explode." You know, like the other guy. Yeah. Because lucky for me, I get to tour as a comedian, and I know I'm going to just heighten my tours by yeah. playing maybe some kind of a wise ass, uh, a guy in, in in some of the projects that you do. But yeah. man, you do pull it off, and you pull it off well. So I'm really hoping that these these guys will keep on taking you. To the next level, because, I mean, if you look at Martin Scorsese, it's like almost the same cast all the time. Yeah. They're all good friends, De Niro and Pacino well, and, and stuff like that. It's so. funny you mention that because that's what, you know, I, I mirror the things that I do based off of other people. Because if you want to be great, you follow greatness, right? Yeah. So he says the reason why he uses the same people all the time is because he knows what he gets out of them. And I realize that that's true. But unfortunately, like in the two mob stories because one's mob king and one's silent partners is about the mafia i don't want to make it where you don't know which one you're watching right well of course so yep. i so i change people out and stuff like that and you know naturally when i was first starting as you know four or five years ago people didn't take me serious they're just like oh who's this guy he thinks he's this or that or whatever and now i've earned the respect of many you know because now people see i have the ability to do these things i have a knack for putting the right people in the right places to make things work the right way you know and that's really what it boils down to on whether or not you're going to be able to do something i cast all my own projects myself 
I make all the decisions on everything from art to this or that. I wear a lot of the hats. I do the line produce. I do all these different things, right? Because I want to make sure that this is my vision. If I'm doing your vision, then I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So, so, I, yep. You know, so I create my own stuff, you know, and people always say, hey, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? And they don't understand. Like some people wake up every morning and be like, how am I going to get the money for the light bill? I wake up every morning and be like, how am I going to find a half a million today to do this project? You know what I mean? And I go about that, you know, and, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. It's getting easier now because I'm building a track record. You got a track record. So now I have Hollywood players, like for the ministry, is going to be funded by a real company on debt financing and tax breaks and all that other kind of stuff, money guarantees and stuff like that. So I've crossed that threshold. So now, you know, we're talking about making four films a year and each one's going to get bigger and better. So now it's going to be like that. So I'm going to remember all of the people who I had good experiences with acting and I'm going to remember all the ones who I didn't. You know what I mean? So, you know, with that said, that's just the way business is. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, um, I'm just going to keep making films. Um, hopefully... Uh, I keep hiring people instead of me doing it because like I said I would much prefer to do that I'm not really interested in being a director I think that being a being a great producer and being able to find a director because all of the same way I'm not big on doing all of the things you need to do as an actor standing around waiting and then delivering this that and the other thing you know if you've been on set with me you know I don't rehearse I learn my lines right before I do it, so it just comes out, <laughs> you know what I mean? But a lot of it's laziness, too. I don't want to spend a lot of time, you know, doing that stuff, you know what I mean? But, yeah. I, but I do it, you know, and I'm co-writer on it, so I already know what's got to be done and stuff like that. But I always want to be in a position where it's like, okay, this is the project I have. This is what I'm doing. These are the people I'm putting in play, and that's where I'm at now, you know what I mean? I know each role, like a lot of times I'll cast people without having the role for them. That's how me and Jokes and Bishop, we write. Like with you guys, when Gary recommended you guys, I went in, I seen what you guys do, and if you notice, Leo is you, you know? Uh, D'Onofrio's character, Marmo's character, Villar's character, every, everybody's them. Yeah. You know? Because we created the roles based on your personalities and stuff. You know? That's so, a great thing, and I appreciate that, and yeah. I like doing that. I, I liked working on Cherry Pickers because when I was watching what you guys were doing, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I had no idea. You want me to be a fictitious person who in the scene actually exists. Right. And I'm like, that is genius. <laughs> and I wish cool. I had the opportunity <laughs> to see, you know, Jay Bishop do it before I did it, but mm -hmm. maybe it was best that I didn't. Because yeah. when he was telling me in the green room, this is the way I act, I'm like, okay, so I'm supposed to be you. Have you seen or, it? Or a ripoff of you. Did I send you the assembly? Yeah, I saw it. Okay, I yeah, saw the so, whole thing. Yeah, well, it's almost finished. Like, we, we're doing the coloring and the posts and everything now. We're going to put it in the film festivals and stuff like that. Because, you know, I killed the film festival circuit with all the projects, man. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish I was still it. hosting half those film festivals yeah. so I could say, and now, zero. <laughs> but yeah. the funniest thing is when I was watching the project, I'm like, oh, wow, look at that. Now I get what they're doing. You know what? That's a real good fucking slap in the face. Yeah. I'm actually one of the guys acting in a scene that was stolen. Right, exactly. <laughs> From exactly. the guy who we watched do it. And that's so Hollywood. Yeah, it's classic. Yeah, and I, I, I'm like, wow, okay, I'm really happy that I'm part of something like that because I'd yeah. love to do something like that because I actually yeah. wouldn't act like that. I'm not yeah. that, that bit of a... 
let's say, an, an asshole, but it, I wanted to make the guy an asshole because yeah. I saw the way he was doing it. I'm like, wow, yeah. this is badass. And it takes time, you know? Like, people think, you know, like, like with Mob King, everybody would say, oh, how long has he been bringing out Mob King? You know, yeah, how long have I been bringing it out? When you see shows like, uh, what's that, Forrest Gump took 20 years, Deadpool took eight years. All of these different movies take all these years, and here I am, five years into this, I got five franchises. You know, I got one full feature and another one coming. You know, I'm getting the major distribution. How, how much faster do you want me to do? And I did it with a two-year hiatus of COVID. <laughs> and now I'm doing plus it with the, a strike. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I don't let nothing stop me. You plus know? the health issues. So, yeah, yeah man. I still kept working. Even when I had the cancer, I was still filming, you know. I was still doing everything I had to do with Mob King. So. I love all these projects. Uh, of course, I would like to be part of everything. And... Uh, you know, I hope I can call you someday on the road in front of thousands of people going, hey man, the episode looked great. I gotta go on stage, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Hey, I'm in a new series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do a movie first and then maybe we can transition from a movie to a series instead of doing it the other way around. For all you filmmakers out there, I just wanna let you know that if you're trying to do a series and think that you're gonna get picked up, there's like a 99.9% .9 shot that that's not gonna happen. They just do not invite um, <clears throat> independent series creators. I don't care how much money you spend. I spent almost a million dollars on Silent Partners as a uh, pilot. It's great. And the only couple of offers I had was for me to gut everybody except myself. And I wasn't going to do that, you know, because the whole purpose of me doing it was, you know, for one major network, uh, cable network, the deal was, you know, that. And I told them, I said, uh, I go, well, David Chase, you know, had the Sopranos and they said well you're not David Chase I said well how do you know I'm not David Chase right. I said if you like the show enough to where you want to do a deal with me then you should let me do it my way and they're like well we have our own people that we want in there and that's where you're going to run into the problems that every outlet has their own people their own showrunners so immediately when you start talking to somebody and they like your idea their first thing is, is they bring in a showrunner that they're going to want to have control over and then that guy's going to say well I want this person this person and this person and then it, it ends everything. And they're like, well, we want to film it again. Yep. And you understand why. Because I might sit here and say, well, you know, I spent a million dollars on Silent Partners. But the reality of it is, is these shows spend three, four million dollars per episode. So it's a big time difference. You know what I mean? So um, most people try to do their pilots and stuff with 30 grand, 40 grand. And it's not going to work. So what I would recommend if you're in that position before you go spend a bunch of money is I would take two days. I would film six or seven scenes. I would make a sizzle reel. I would use existential shots of whatever city you're in and create a three to four minute promo of what your show idea, your movie idea is about. And then you can contact people. Like Slate, Slated.com is very good for filmmakers. You submit your thing, they evaluate your script. Um, and then if it makes a score over, I think it's like 75, they put it into their system on finding you people that will make your stuff for you. Um, you know, I'm giving away a lot of tricks that I learned the hard way, but yes. you know, it it's all about everybody coming up. You know, I, I'm I'm all for independent filmmakers making their way. You know, so that's how you do it. There's companies like Buffalo Aid and a whole host of other ones that will do executive uh, producer packages if they like your idea, and then they'll shop it. You know, because in this business, as an independent, you will not be able to get yourself seen by anybody. You cannot get into a distribution door if you go. I mean, lower level distribution, yeah, but I'm talking about ones that where you're going to really make money. 
you are not going to be able to talk to anybody. You understand? You have to have somebody that goes, brings you to them, a sales agent, an agent, or somebody like that. And, you know, that's just not easy to do. But once you do have that door open, like me now, I got several on roll, on, on you know, Rolodex. It's like, okay, I can call right up into anybody now. And that's the way it works. So if I had the knowledge I have now four years ago, Silent Partners would have not been made as a pilot. It would have been made as a movie. Um, I would have, would have just done things a lot different. So I had to learn the hard way. But well, now you got bigger now, opportunities now and you can do it the way you want. Yeah, now it's coming. Because in the end... You know, I tell people all the time when, at least as it pertains to the entertainment world, people will always say, oh, I work harder than anybody. And I'll always say, that doesn't matter. Right. I'll take talent over hard work any day of the, of the, of the week. So that's, that's what it boils down to. You got you to gotta be able to know that if you go and you cast your friends in a project, that's going to weaken the project if they can't pull their weight as an actor. You ain't shit. You know shit. what I'm saying? So acting is the is the key you know one thing that people talk about my stuff you don't have to like me you don't have to like my projects but people always say that 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 movie has good actors the acting is good there's no weak links anywhere same thing with mob king and they say it with silent partners so that's uh that's a testament to the fact that i think we're getting a little windy out here yeah that's a testament to the fact that you know there's there's a lot of good talent out there you just got to be able to say no to your friends and yes to the people who can pull it off And your friends should understand because you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. One of the things that's really great about what Ciro mentioned, uh, and you also mentioned his name, Sylvester Stallone. I was watching in an interview, and they was, and it was from a long time ago, after he had made Rocky. Yeah. The interviewer said to him, "So, how much money were you actually offered to give up your script?" And he said, $245,000. And he said, and at that time, that was a lot of money. But I had to say to myself, wait a minute. This could be the only shot I get, and I'm not going to give it up. And it, they probably would have went to a half a million dollars. And I says, no, I have to be Rocky Balboa. And yeah, good I thing get, he did. <laughs> I get compared to that story a lot. And let's, let's keep it real right now. As at this point, I don't make money at this. You know what I mean? Like, uh, my investors that put, you know, Anthony Caliendo, who did Mob King, he gets everything that comes in because I'm not going to be one of those people that be like, yeah, I want half right now. No, no, man, get all your money back. And then, you know, a year from now when it's all taken care of, whatever, now we're 50-50. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yes. So, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I got to build a pipeline of films, you know? Like the ministry deal that I'm going to be doing, I'll make some money for filming that. You know what I mean? Silent Partners now, I'll make money when that starts generating. So once I have the pipeline going, now I start generating the funds. You know what I'm saying? Right. But, you know, a lot of what I've seen is people aren't frugal with their money that they get to make stuff. You know what I mean? You have to be able to... You better be careful. ...put the resources into it because no matter what people want to talk about my past, and I've heard it all, you know what I mean? I've heard it all. Like, oh, you scammed this guy for $3 million. I'm like, okay, where's the guy? <laughs> where's the guy? All my stuff is public. Where's the guy that got scammed for $3 million? You know, my my investors are all in less than I could fit them all on 10 hands. I mean, on 10 fingers. You know what right, I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. So it's like, and, you know, it's not a great business model. So you have to make films a million dollars and under. You have to understand the streaming aspect of it. You have to be able to, to factor in when the potential ROI is. And you have to be honest with somebody. You know, if somebody's going to give me $8 million to make a movie, I'm going to tell them, let me make eight of them. See what I'm saying? I would, yeah. And, and you have to be willing not to line your pockets with it. You know, you have to be able to 
produce the content. And that's what happens with me. People can say whatever they want, but the content gets produced at a high level and it's out there. So you're left with I a shut you. door in your face. But you know? You're pretty much saying, well, wait a minute, I did make the project, you could see it. That's yeah, exactly. it, exactly. you can actually watch it. Exactly. We made the project, now we're moving on to the next the thing. Next one. Yeah. Getting, getting investors is very difficult. And of course, if you're a legit uh, filmmaker, your investor would get his money back first and then away you go. Yeah. And then hopefully everybody will stay as a family and yeah. keep on going. And you franchise and all of a sudden you're the new McDonald's and, yeah. and uh, but your if you're, team. If you're telling an investor, oh, you'll get your money back in a couple months, <laughs> you're going to have big problems because it's not the way it works. You know, it, no. in 12 months, if you make the money for the right budget and it's a good film with good acting and good content and good production value, then they can see that money coming back. But otherwise, um, you know, that's why I'm going to, my, my threshold is a million dollars. I'm not going to make anything more than that because I want the money to be coming in. You know, yes. I do this to make money. I don't do this because I want to be a superstar. I right. do this as a business. <clears throat> it is business. And if we could keep on going, we could keep on growing and uh, do everything we want. And before you know it, you're sitting in front of a pool like this every day, <laughs> coming up with new, new ideas to keep on doing stuff in this great business called the entertainment world. Yeah. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, could you tell everybody where they could find you on the internet? He has one of the biggest followings on social media. I just go to Facebook, Cyril DePazio. You know, that's where I do most of my engagements. I mean, I have TikTok, 150,000, but to me, I just, post, I just post the same. If I make a reel, I put it everywhere. So Facebook is where you can see everything. Um, you know, and uh, but your Instagram's pretty big. I think you well, sent me a. It was at a million, and then it got hacked, and then I built it back up to seven hundred thousand, and it got hacked by those Bitcoin people. You know, and then another one was a girl, uh, one of these actresses. I think the name was Valentina or something. Sent and says, "Hey, I'm in this thing. Can you vote for me?" So I was like, "Yeah, sure." I clicked the link. The second I clicked the link and opened it, they had access to my account and shut me out of it. Holy crap, yeah, really? So now I just, I don't even really care about Instagram too much. You know, uh, I got like 13,000 followers there. I don't really work it. I just, you know, I'm starting to do it a little bit more because, you know, people are there that aren't over here. So I spend a little bit more time there. And, you know, but um, the whole purpose for me to do social media when I first started was to get where I could get distribution deals and show that I had a fan base and all that. Um, I'm at that now. So, that's a big reason why Buffalo 8 is, is hard on me because they're like, hey man, you got a great engagement. You know, this is a good lift up. It's proven that it works with Mob King because of the amount of views and amount of things that went on. So my reach is long when it comes to that. But yeah, Facebook, a lot of people downplay it and downplay social media. But you know, if you're downplaying it, you're making a big mistake. Oh yeah, no. A grave error. Folks, we're all over social media. Grave you know error. me, I'm a social media whore because I'm a live performer and I need the fans. He's got a great following, he's got great fans. I watch what he does. Every time you tag me, I re-put it back out. So once again, tell everybody where they can find you on the internet and tell them where we could see Mob King and anything else that you got going on. Okay. Mob King is everywhere, Apple TV, Amazon, and all the rest of that. And then uh, Tubi for free, Plex for free, Sling for free. It's in your airlines, it's in your hotels, so it's everywhere. And it's coming worldwide too. I, I think they're starting to do that now. And uh, Silent Partners will be out, you know, probably summer release. We're looking at uh, getting a, a theatrical run out of it. And, uh, you know, we're going to be filming in February and uh, ministry right behind that. So, you know, the filmmaking days are on. 
a lot of great projects, a really great guy. Just told you guys how to stay healthy, told you guys how to do business, and told you guys where you could find his work in the future, and on and on and on. I want to thank Ciro for letting me come to his gorgeous house, giving me a nice cappuccino, a great conversation in front of a beautiful jacuzzi with his little dog running around. You guys, I want you to follow him, take a look at the projects, Mob King. Can you still got Mob King merchandise? Yeah, we got everything. Mob King Olive Oil, mobkingoliveoil.com, uh, T-shirts, King Geo, apparel.com. Uh, we got everything we got weed <laughs> we, we got cbd oil oh no shit i didn't uh, know about yeah, that cigars um i mean there's this uh, that's great and don't forget to drink your monsters drink your monsters you want to hold up you can't uh, yeah. <laughs> you know i told them i'm not a big advocate of unhealthy <laughs> stuff but they write a check so drink it folks we got to get going Thank you so much, Ciro, for come, letting me come over, man. This is just really, really great. You know where to find us, folks. Everything is at Mike Marino Live on all social media every Tuesday night. Go ahead. Shout out to Gary Pastore. Said he's going to be watching. He plays Fat Dave Icavetti in Silent Partners. Uh, it has James Russo, uh, Nick Valonga, Oscar Torre, Joseph D'Onofrio, Ronnie Marmo. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I don't know who I miss. Mike Marino, <laughs> uh, James Bishop, and, uh, you know, the new people we're going to add. So, Silent Partners, going to be a big time. We'll, we'll be in touch. Soon. We'll get to see all of this stuff. And shout so. out to my guy, Anthony Caliendo, for making Mob King possible. Anthony. And Barry J. Minow. Good stuff. Great guys. Yeah. So, folks, keep on watching my podcast every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, exclusively now on my YouTube channel, which is Mike Marino Live on YouTube. Big shout out to my producer, Tatiana Blue Shell. Hey, for Tatiana. Always, <laughs> for always making sure the podcast comes out great and people get to see it every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. I'm Mike Marino. Remember, let's make America Italian again. Now we're hitting the Italian jacuzzi. Yeah, look at that, huh? <laughs> Remember, you don't know nothing, you don't see nothing, you don't say nothing. And how to, I end every single one of my podcasts by saying the same thing with my guests. Don't take no shit from nobody. Ready? Don't take, take no, no shit, shit from nobody. nobody. <laughs>